Welcome to episode 198 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. We have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Uh, hey, Shane. We do. Ethan, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate the support. Um, and really, that goes out to all of our Patreon supporters. As always, we certainly... I uh, love seeing it. It helps us do lots of things on the podcast. And uh, we're going to, at some point, I don't know if it's this episode or next episode, we're going to get into some work that Ethan's been doing, like some uh, one, one of his observing projects, which is very, very cool. Yeah, that's that's going to be the next episode. Okay. And uh, yeah, we also heard back from Joseph. I mean, for those who kind of listened last week, um, we thank Joseph, and usually what we what we always do is, you know, as far as I know anyway, we send thank yous to our Patreon supporters. And when we wrote Joseph, it, it came back. We thought, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. And we kind of sent out a show to him. And uh, anyway, he wrote us back this week and sent us all kinds of uh, great information on his projects. And yeah. both uh, both he and, uh, and Ethan um, have some really interesting projects, and they really detailed them out. So when we were talking about what shows we would do this week and just sort of in combination with a, a recent discussion I had with uh, the observing committee, we thought, well, we'll make a whole episode on observing projects, but that will be, that will be the next one. So yeah, uh, yeah. we really, really appreciate the Patreon support and, uh, and also uh, really appreciate uh, both uh, Ethan and Joseph uh, kind of inspiring us in what we're going to do for the next episode. So that's pretty cool. So how was your week, Shane? You've got some updates here. Let's uh, hear about it. Yeah, so uh, just the the quick update on the observing front is no observing happened. Uh, again, our weather just continues to be not favorable for astronomers. Uh, clouds pretty much every night. I think there was yeah. there was one night where the moon was sort of poking through some clouds, and it allowed me to do some measurements on my Takahashi seventy six. Uh, I'm trying to measure the back focus required. Um, uh, to get the 24 millimeter panoptic focused and then do the math as to how I can fit the bino viewer into that light path without needing a Barlow. So it's a, it's a real slow process when you can't actually see anything with your telescope. So, uh, anyway, that, uh, that, that, really what we should do is just record like our observing update. Um, and the weather update, and then just press play every week. Cause I feel it's the same thing. It's, it's cloudy yeah. and we can't observe and we're hoping for better. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was somewhat clear on the night of the full moon. I think it was the 16th and yeah, yeah. I, I just looked out the window. I was like, yep, there's the full moon, but I think it was really cold that night. And we're, we're going from these extreme colds, um, these extreme like cold periods, like very short bursts down to into the minus 30s i think it was minus 32 here this morning and then it skyrocketed so when i think our high yesterday was positive four and it rained a bit and we've got all kinds of snow down so people know what kind of mess that would make and then it went down into the minus 20s minus 32 with the wind and then now it's going up to minus seven and then it's supposed to be minus again 30 overnight and then it's going to minus 12 and then it's gonna be cold for a few days and then it's gonna be five degrees it just really really difficult and what happens of course i i think sheen is that you know because this is happening over a large piece of of uh of the earth basically is that you got the snow and other moisture that's down and of course when it moderates that kind of evaporates a bit and goes up and i you know that's kind of the cycle for making clouds 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Our forecast, though, this week, like right now, uh, Monday night through Friday night is clear, but the first, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're minus 30s as overnight lows. And then Thursday, Friday is minus 20 and minus 16. So Thursday, Friday might not be too bad, you know, yeah. um, a little bit better than minus 30 anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's just, know. and often when it's been clear-ish, it's been super windy, which yeah, it's not great. So. Well, yeah. And, and a couple of times I've poked out with a telescope or binoculars, like the seeing really has been quite poor. Um so anyway, I'll take whatever I can get. If it's clear this week, I will certainly uh, get out for a little bit and uh, play around. So, but anyway, yeah. um, yeah, I do have some other updates. Yeah, go for uh, it. I don't know if you saw this, Chris, about Takahashi. Um, they're, they just killed a whole bunch of eyepiece, uh, eyepiece lines. So the, uh, the Takahashi LEs are discontinued. Oh yeah. Um, so if you want any of those, uh, whatever is left in stock is really all that it will ever remain. Uh, the Takahashi Abbey Orthos are discontinued. Um, they they recently, uh, I don't know, probably for the last five to eight years, they've had a, a 28 millimeter Urfel. Uh, that's discontinued. Mm. And I think, don't quote me on this, but they have some ultra wide angled eyepieces and I think they discontinued those. Oh, really? Those are always kind of interesting, but like, yeah. like, don't get me wrong. I really like the Takahashi stuff, but I found like, I never looked through any, any of the orthos and I didn't look through any of the crazy ultra wides they had. Um, but I kind of feel like those orthos were kind of, from what I read anyway, seemed like might be, um, not as sharp on the edge as what one might hope for. And the LEs were getting really long in the tooth. I mean, those have been around since I think those have been around since I started doing astronomy. So yeah, yeah, they, you're right. Like I think I have the second edition of the backyard astronomers or backyard observers guide by mm-hmm. Dickinson and, and Alan Dyer. Yeah. Um, so like that's from the early two thousands. And at that point in time, like it, it talks about the Takahashi LEs as, as premier eyepieces, but they weren't even new at that point. So yeah, no. they've been around a long time. They yep. are a, they're considered a pseudo uh, Masuyama eyepiece. Like they use yep. the same design, like I think five elements, uh, the LE, I think stands for long eye relief, but it's, it's not really a, that long. <laughs> it's a relative statement. It's long mm-hmm. compared to plossels, but it's not long eye relief that you and I as eyeglass wearers require. Um, and I have owned a couple of the LE eyepieces. I had the 30 and I had the seven and a half, I think it is. Um, Sounds about right. yeah, the seven and a half was quite sharp on axis, uh, as was the 30, uh, but I found eye relief too tight and edge performance on those, even in like my F like seven to eight telescopes was not very good. Um, and probably what disappointed me the most was the 30. Um, and, and it's because the, like the, uh, glass, like the top of the objective is really recessed in the eyepiece. Yeah. So even though, like, I think they advertise like 20 ish millimeters of eye relief effectively, I think it's only like maybe 10 or 12 because that, that glass is so far down. You just can't, you know, you can't get your eye anywhere near it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, neither of those eyepieces stayed in my collection very long. Uh, they're gone. Uh, I have owned, well, I do own the TAC Abbey Ortho, the 32 millimeter. Um, and it's a wonderful eyepiece. I love it. Um, mm. It's, it's uh, fairly lightweight. It's quite sharp. 
eye relief is really nice. Um, it, it works well for me. Um, I did have the, oh gee, I had the nine millimeter as well as the 12 and a half millimeter. And I preferred the old 0.965 Takahashi MC orthos over the modern Abbey orthos that they've been selling. Yeah. Like they were very close in performance, uh, you know, very sharp, um, very good sort of neutral presentation of color. Um, I, I just have a, a, you know, a a real crush, I guess, or, or affinity for those old MC orthos. Like they're smaller, they're lighter. And I think their performance might've just been a notch above these Abbey orthos. So you factor all of that in and, and I, you know, again, those other than the 32 millimeter ortho, the rest were sold. And the reason why I kept the 32 is like, there's not many long focal length orthos out there. Yeah. Um, like the Zeiss Abbey orthos, there's a, a 30 or a 32 millimeter, but it's exceptionally rare. And like, I think you're probably paying a thousand to maybe 1500 us dollars for that one single eyepiece, which, you know, I'm really not willing to pay that much money <laughs> for it. So, um, uh, I, I, I think the 32 millimeter is a fantastic ortho that, you know, if you are an ortho fan, it's one to consider because again, there's just not many in that focal length. Yeah. Um, I'm just look, looking here at the, uh, at the ultra wides there, there were a 90 degree set. There was four. 10, 7, 5.7, and 3.3. So sort of a beautiful um, selection, in my opinion, anyway, for focal lengths. I think they, they knocked it out of the park there, and they were 90 degrees. But uh, I think the eye relief on them was, I don't know, maybe it was like 12 millimeters. Yeah, that's what it's saying. Yeah, yeah the eye relief on them was 12. So uh, still not enough eye relief for... Uh, for glasses wearers and probably, probably okay for, uh, non-glasses wearers, but so many of us have to wear glasses. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a little disappointing when you're not getting that full, like hundred degrees and you can't wear your glasses. It mm-hmm. kind of seems like these days, um, you, you gotta be able to satisfy the, the needs of the eyeglass wearers uh, a little bit more. Uh, if you want to charge, uh, well, these are about a thousand dollars Canadian, I think so. That, that's a lot to pay for an eyepiece that, uh, yeah, you couldn't use with your glasses. But here they were the best. I hear they were really, really good. It was that they reported on them. I never yeah. tried them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never tried them either. Uh, just read reports. Uh, the only eyepieces I think that they will keep in production for now are the TOEs, um, which are really short focal length. Like they're, I think the longest focal length is four millimeters. And, uh, there's like a 3.3 and maybe a 2.5 or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, they, they seem pretty interesting. Um, you know, I, you know, if you want a planetary eyepiece, that's uh, probably good, good route to go, but yeah, hopefully we see another line from them. Cause I really yeah. think that, uh, you know, they could do something, uh, special there, but, uh, man, their telescopes are just so phenomenal. Maybe they're going to just put their efforts into maintaining, um, their line of scopes, uh, simply because of, of how good they are just, uh, kind of remarkable how, how great a telescope Takahashi makes. Well, Chris, that's a good segue into part two of the Takahashi update. Oh yeah. Go for it. <laughs> um, it's not a good update though. Uh, apparently like, uh, no telescopes will be delivered for at least the next 12 months, um, huh. or something along those lines. They're, they're having a real tough time with supply chain. 
Yeah, apparently. And uh, I guess that's part of the reason for the eyepiece uh, discontinuation. No. I'm just basing this on what I read on Cloudy Nights. So there's a, there's a thread on there if anybody's interested. Um, so it sounds like if you want uh, like a Takahashi telescope, you're probably waiting a while. If you already own one, uh, cherish it and, and value it because, yeah. uh, you know, you just, you're not going to be able to replace it for, for the foreseeable future. Um, and certainly my hope here is that they're able to stay in business. You know, like if you're not selling anything, I don't know yeah. how you run a business, but um, hopefully, hopefully they can, you know, remain viable and uh, continue to operate. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I guess that is a concern. Uh, hopefully they're able to to do that um, simply because I think that their, their telescopes um, are exquisite. And I think they're a bargain. I really do. Like I've looked through tons of them. I, I own a couple and I think, you know, they're, they're uh, really affordable for what you get. Like you really do get um, such a phenomenal piece of gear. It's really, you know, my opinion um, the best for looking at planets with, and, uh, they're just absolutely exquisite. And, you know, for the prices they charge, like my hundred millimeter DC, um, when I got that on sale, whatever it cost, um, was, you know, it's not inexpensive, but it's, it's not the most expensive four inch you can get. And, uh, it's not that much more really than, um, you know, sort of, uh, a mass produced instrument. So you, you kind of get that, handmade custom Takahashi feel with, uh, you know, I think quite a reasonable price. Once you look through it, you know, once you put that super high power eyepiece in and take a look at, at the clouds going across the Martian deserts, I mean, you know, it's uh, kind of ridiculous how good their telescopes are for the, for the prices they charge. So they really do give you that, that supreme uh, ability to, to just really jack the power. Yeah. Like optically there's, they're nearly perfect. You know, I guess probably about as good as it gets these days. Um, the, the other side that they excel on though, is, is the weight of their telescopes. Um, like they're, that's they're, right. Yeah. They're metal recipes, like whatever they're doing there, they're able to produce some really lightweight instruments, yep. um, which, you know, then the, the benefit of that is you, you can get away with a lighter weight mount, maybe a lighter weight tripod, and save some money on that side of the investment. Um, so, yeah. you know, cause it's like, uh, what there's, there's some newer refractor makers. I think they're newer or they're at least kind of newer to me. Um, one is a Jima, I believe a G E M a, uh, they're okay. making doublet refractors, uh, out of fluorite. Um, they're quite a bit, well, I think their smallest one might be 120 millimeters. So like oh. they're, they're a little bit larger aperture. Um, but I believe like the 120, oh geez, I can't remember now if it's four or five thousand US dollars. Like it's wow. not inexpensive and it's it's heavier. Um the recent Stellar View, uh, what is it, the SVXDs, I think. Like so they're doublets. Okay. Uh they're made to a real high level of quality too, uh, in terms of the polish of the glass. And and I think that they're probably you know, probably on par with, a, a you know, the Takahashi optically, but again, they just weigh a heck of a lot more. So, yeah. um, you're, you're sort of getting the best of all worlds. I think with the tack, um, probably the biggest drawback, which is no secret to anybody looking or that has looked into tax is, uh, the focuser, you know, often they're single speed, I think from factory and, uh, yeah. 
not always ready or not always capable to handle like real heavyweight loads if you're putting cameras and stuff like that on them. But, you know, maybe the triplets and and some of the other like FSQs, like they might be better. I'm not, I'm not too sure what their focusers are like, but I, I know like your, like the ones that you and I own, uh, the focusers from factory are, uh, you know, I guess acceptable, but certainly not outstanding. Well, I replaced mine, uh, with the, uh, feather touch. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I use one of the TAC focusers. So I, I, I have two TAC uh, telescopes. I bought the sixty um, and uh, the the sixty F. Was it F twelve or something like that? But it's the one with the part you can take out, and then it becomes F five point nine. Mostly, I just use it in the five point nine. Um, but the focuser that came on that, I really didn't like. And then when I bought the hundred millimeter. It's supposed to come with an identical focuser. Mine did not. Uh, the focuser that the Hunter came with was, I think, perfect. And what I ended up doing was uh, when I bought the 60, I bought the uh, Feather Touch Ultralight. So I was trying to create a ultra portable little refractor that I could travel with. And I did and do quite a bit. Um, but, you know, it's a pretty small telescope anyway. So what I did is when the, uh, when the 100 millimeter came in, which, which I ended up using quite a bit more now, I put the feather touch on that instrument and took the hundred millimeter focuser off that and put it on the 60. So my 60 millimeter has a hundred millimeter badge on it. I, I get a little kick out of that, even though nobody ever sees it. But. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, maybe we should make that our Twitter avatar, you know, just <laughs> a picture of the little 60 with the hundred millimeter tag on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sort of in the tradition of, uh, uh, I used to observe with a guy named uh, Daryl DeWolf, and he bought a Tax Sky 90 and put a Tasco um, branded uh, label on it because okay. I, I think the label was the same, and I think it was like the it had like the rivets or whatever, and he figured out somehow that a certain model of Tasco had the same size um, labeling, and it's like a little you know what it's like it's almost like a dog tag to have on them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, he put that on his sky nani i always thought that was pretty hilarious <laughs> so he always used to refer to it as the tasco people would say oh what kind of refractor is that and he'd say it's a tasco and he would like just like go with it like <laughs> tasco hashi yeah exactly yeah. exactly what's the bond of your story uh well you basically kind of said yeah yeah i kind of already said it, but yeah i didn't really just yeah that, so. yeah the, the only thing maybe i would add is um like what, what the end goal is, or maybe the next steps. So you measure, what you do is, is you put an eyepiece in that you would be using in your bino viewer. You put it in your telescope without the bino viewer and without a diagonal in, in the light path. Mm. And then you get it to focus. And then using like a digital caliber, uh, measurer, you can, um, you can measure the distance required to get that eyepiece to focus. So for yeah. example, like my pan optic, the 24 millimeter panoptic, I think it's going to be probably around 160 ish millimeters uh, of back focus. Holy cow. Yeah. It's a ton. So then what you do, once you know that you then say, okay, when I insert uh, my bino viewer, that's 130 millimeters. Right. And yeah. you know, my diagonal, I don't know what that is probably 30 to 40 millimeters. Yeah. Um, and then you start adding like all of the little spacings with like, you know, the, uh, like the eyepiece clamp, right? Like, you know, yeah, like eight millimeters there or whatever it might be. So you, you add all of that up 
And then right now, like just natively, it exceeds the length required. Uh, So then you have to use a Barlow or you start to look at like Bader and and other manufacturers, like they all have, you know, adapters and all sorts of different things that you can maybe shorten some of that light path. So really it just becomes a math exercise of, okay, if I replace, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, um, I don't know, this, this like nose piece or, or this eyepiece clamp, you know, with something of a lower profile, I can shave off seven millimeters, right? Yeah. For example. And, and you do that at every point to see if you can get uh, the panoptics in this case, you know, at 160-ish millimeters, see if you can hit that mark uh, by just, you know, shortening that light path. And, and it can be quite challenging. And in some cases it's, it's impossible. You just can't do it. And you still have to use a Barlow or, or some sort of, uh, you know, glass path corrector to, uh, get things to focus. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, you know, vinyl viewing, uh, can be very rewarding. Like I've certainly enjoyed it when I've done it. This part of vinyl viewing is probably not as fun, but once you figure out what your configuration needs to be for your particular telescope, uh, you know, you're made in the shade, you, you, you do it once and then it'll just work for you going forward. So, uh, I don't mind the timing of doing this because we're not really observing much anyway. So this is a good time to be, to be messing around with gear to, to yeah. get it to work. Just cut your tube down. Well, that's what some people do for sure. Right. Like, uh, some people will just cut the tube by, you know, 50 millimeters or whatever they need. Um, and then they're okay. Uh, and then if they are not using the vinyl viewer, you just put an extension in, in your focuser to, to kind of reclaim that light path and you can then use like, you know, mono eyepieces and and everything works fine, but cutting a tube is not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, to cut it, you, you really need to cut it perfectly straight. So most people in their garage probably aren't going to be capable of doing that. You probably need to take it to some kind of a machine shop. And like in our case, uh, or at least with my Takahashi 76, the focuser is threaded and it just screws into the optical tube. So like if I cut my tube, I lose those threads and then I don't know how I attach a focuser <laughs> anymore. I guess they could probably rethread the, the OTA, but uh, I don't no know. Problem. It just seems like a mess. It's easy. This is all easy. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to drop it off at your place this afternoon. <laughs> I don't think you would want to do that. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I would never do the work and just observe through the telescope. <laughs> is it done yet, Chris? Uh, just, just about, I need another week. <laughs> no, you'd never see it again. All right. Yeah. I finished teaching my astronomy class. Yeah. That's what I'm up to. <laughs> that's it. Okay. So, so it ended and yeah. everybody was happy. Yeah, I just did four weeks this time. So yeah, pretty, uh, pretty relaxed schedule. I think I'd like to try to do five week courses. I think that's sort of the Goldilocks number for me. I think I could probably uh, do that. I'm trying to do it more of a sustainable way with like doing the podcast and my other projects and everything. I'm trying to keep doing those courses because I enjoy doing them and I think people uh, enjoy taking them and it's it's a great opportunity for people that are looking to get going in astronomy to have kind of a, a consistent and and uh and regular way to to catch up with somebody who who thinks they know what they're doing or something anyway yeah it's it's all good um so uh, yeah we'll see how that uh, that goes into the future i'm going to do one in the spring that will be four weeks and then i think i gotta get back to the calendar work this week i 
have to uh, sort of finish corralling my uh, information together. And uh, yeah, so that should be good. We've got some emails here to read. Maybe we should just dive into those. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Want me to take, grab the first one here from yeah. Clint? Yeah, All right. You. So we heard from Clint. He says, uh, Chris and Shane, hello from Idaho. I recently stumbled upon your podcast and have uh, binge listened from the beginning. <laughs> it's always like a surprise that people listen to it from the beginning because, um, and, and that's great. We were kind of working through some challenges there at the very start that I'm always like, oh, sorry about the sound on some of those early episodes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We we definitely made some improvements uh, and had some lessons learned from early on. So, you know, if you've listened to those early ones and you're not a huge fan, um, try advancing thirty or forty or fifty episodes. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's, and there's no way to like go back and and tell people that as they're like yeah. there's there's so many views of the or listens to the first episode. I'm like, it's not really that kind of podcast. There's some there's some nuggets in there. I think like you could kind of sort of mine for them a bit. But uh, I'm not sure that uh, that every episode was, you know, especially at the start, what we were hoping it to be. But anyway, it's great that uh, that he's enjoyed it and stuck with us this far. He said, uh, you've also included many helpful tips uh, for my observing as a more novice observer. So that's great. It's one of the reasons why we did the podcast. He said, I recently listened to episode 80, your book giveaway, knowing that I discovered your show too late to take part in the drawing. I have to believe somewhere in a vast universe, there's a copy of myself. Uh, that was fortunate enough to uh, to be listening to the show at the time and enter and, and win the book. So yeah, that would be great. I only got one copy of the book this year, so we didn't we didn't do a giveaway and we gave away a calendar instead. So maybe, maybe we'll just mix it up every year, or, or who who knows? We also had to upgrade some of our software, so mm-hmm. we had to put some money towards that. And we gave away we didn't just, so last year we gave away one book, and this year we gave away two copies of the calendar. I think something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So we, we've upped our game. We just changed what we we're giving away just for variety. Um, and then Clint goes on to say, I am a biologist by training and fascinated by minute details and uh, the inner workings of stuff. The universe has always been a marvel to me through astronomy and observing, uh, though astronomy and observing are fairly recent pursuits. It says two years ago, my son asked for a telescope for his birthday, knowing nothing about observing at the time. My wife and I bought him a Celestron 70 millimeter travel scope. That's pretty good little travel scope to get started i think yeah that's awesome uh yeah. like that, that telescope is like i kind of almost hate the word starter scopes because mm. it, it implies that there's a limited lifetime to them mm. it's not the case like that is a telescope you can use your whole life um yeah and and you won't you won't you like you won't be disappointed it'll be really good yeah. um however you know you typically if you spend more time in the hobby you'll likely acquire different instruments, but, um, but that's a great telescope for sure. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, I've been uh, hooked ever since. And, uh, he said, uh, as inexpensive the scope is, I love that it allows me to, I love what it allows me to see. I really enjoy viewing uh, open clusters and try to find as many messy objects as I can. Uh, though the objective is not much for like gathering. I, I use a 60 a lot of the time. So I think, I think like a good little 70 like that is, mm-hmm. is always going to serve you well. But he goes on yeah. to say this, which uh, I think is great. He said, this week I just purchased a new Skywatcher, Skymax 127 on an AZ GTI mount, which is, I think, an, I think that is a great combination for somebody in um, his situation because um, that's a five inch. And I think that's the little um, Max Sudoff that Skywatcher sells. It's five inch. So it's like you know, good size five inch and mm-hmm. on an easy GTI, which is the mount that I have. I, I think that's an awesome combination because 
a good five inch Maksudov is, is going to show the planets really well. It's going to show deep sky objects fairly well. And then uh, he's got the 70. I think the 70 will give him a, a, a slightly wider field of view than that. So I think he's got a really good combination of instruments and the 70 should mount the easy GTI. I don't know what the mounting situation is for the 70, but that should be pretty easy to sort out. If, if he needs any help, just send me a note and I'll help you out. Uh, goes on to say, uh, work has been super busy and have not been able to get first light yet. Seamail's uh, maybe a week or so old, so he, he might have been out uh, by this time. Said that last night temperatures were in single digits Fahrenheit, but the sky was clear, so he took out the 70. In a few minutes, uh, he could bear the temperatures. He was able to see the Rhine Nebula, Pleiades, and the moon, and the moon is fairly full now, and there was uh, snow on the ground, so lighting was terrible, and he, he still appreciated the opportunity. And then... Uh, yeah, he says, uh, all the best, Clint in Idaho. So thanks so much for the uh, email, Clint. I think I did re respond. Um, I know I got a bit spor more sporadic in my responses this week than I'd hoped. End up, uh, we'll teach my class at night. I had a couple other things on this week. So I, I may have, one or two may have slipped by. I know one did for sure. And I think uh, we go through like waves of emails. So there might be like a few days where we don't get emails and then there, there'll be a few days where we get sort of like all the emails that week will come in and then yeah. it kind of peters off. So we, we do try to get to them all, but it, it can happen where we do miss the odd one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and then, Bill uh, wrote you an email. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so Bill, Bill has been on the podcast and uh, Bill uh, corresponds frequently and uh, the, the, the email he sent this time is, hey guys, uh, Shane, I heard you talking about uh, looking for a double star book for small telescopes. Uh, I have slash had a suggestion. Um, it's Sissy Haas's double stars for small telescopes. Uh, it was published by Sky and Telescope. Uh, he said, I bought my copy years ago for $30. I decided to have a look to see if it's still available and found it on Amazon for the very reasonable price of $591. Um, and then uh, I don't know if this is a typo, but on a.com, maybe, I don't know if that's a. I think books. it's, well, I looked at a books and it was that, that was the price of the Okay. Book. Yeah. And, and there it's $255. Yeah. So that, you know. Tongue in cheek, uh, Bill said. So that that's a steal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, he says uh, it's too bad because it's a fabulous book, grouped by constellation, and is really just tables of data. Uh, and then he sent an image of uh, of some of the doubles in Cancer. Uh, he said, "I think I'll hold on to this thing until it cracks at grand." Um, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, he says uh, he's also also has a copy of Ruckel's uh, Atlas of the Moon, and they are now about one hundred and fifty dollars used. Uh, and then hope things warm up soon for you guys. Um, so you, you and I, Chris, we've mentioned this before that if there's an astronomy book that you like, or, or that you might be interested in, yeah, buy, buy it. it because yeah. these are often limited runs and when they go out of production, the price goes through, through the roof. Um, this is a book that I've always, this, this was one of the books that I kind of, you know, wavered on. I should probably buy it. I never did. And now I'm regretting it. Um, but what's funny is when Bill sent that email, I went on to Amazon and I found a used copy for $29 that was in very good condition. Did you buy it? And $6 shipping. So of course, yeah, I bought it. And then three days later, I get an email from Amazon indicating that the, so this, 
you know, it's not fulfilled through Amazon. It was, you know, a yeah. third party. And uh, I received an email indicating my order was canceled and I'm not receiving the book. So I don't know if they just didn't have it or if they realize they could make a lot more money on it. I'm not sure. So disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those things though. Like you can, like, if you do want a book, you can kind of camp out and, and watch for it and eventually get it. And it seems yeah. like books go through cycles. Like I remember uh, Rogers Clark, Roger Clark's book on visual astronomy. I think, I think at one time they were going for similar prices and, uh, and then I, I was like, I always wanted the book and, uh, and it's a good book. I don't think it's a must own or anything like that. And I just waited, waited, waited. Eventually prices came down. I think I got mine for like 50 or 60 bucks American. And, you know, I don't mind spending 50 or 60 bucks on a, on a good used astronomy book. And, um, yeah, I got it. And I was happy with it. I don't think I would have been happy to spend, uh, you know, $250 on it. Um, and then what else have I ended up getting? Well, like Rolks, same thing. It, it had gone way up. I think they were selling for like a thousand dollars and then Sky and Telescope did another run. And suddenly, you know, they, you know, they became much more reasonable, uh, uh, selling used down as low as 30 bucks. So these things go through cycles. So I, I think if you uh, watch out for one chain, you should be able to pick one up, uh, sometime in the next decade. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm glad that Bill mentioned that book because as far as double star observing goes, it, it is one of the benchmarks. Like uh, a lot of people reference Sissy Haas's book and uh, a lot of people use it. It's, you know, it's a really good book. I think there's over, I don't know, 2,100 or 2,500 doubles, uh, that are, are charted in there and are all uh, within the range of, you know, small telescopes that, uh, you know, a lot of amateurs have. So, yeah. Bill, Bill, I was in a meeting with Bill yesterday. He's, he's such a cool guy. You know, it's funny. You think of astronomy as being, you know, uh, more of a, of a, of a nerdy uh, hobby or whatever, you know, and I think maybe I fall a little bit more on the nerdy side of the hobby. And then, you know, I have, I've been really fortunate to meet and, you know, a couple of really good observers who, who don't quite fall into that mold, like Bill and our friend, Mike, you know, like you, you, if you met those guys in the street and then you're like, what are you doing this weekend? And they said that they were doing astronomy. Suddenly astronomy becomes a whole lot cooler. Eh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so anyway, had a note here from, uh, from Wade. He wrote uh, kind of a little bit of, uh, of a note to me, I suppose. He says, but he addressed to us both. He says, hi, Chris and Shane. Hi, Chris and Shane. Just a quick note about the short segment on extended objects. You have really piqued my interest as I did not know things like Barnard's loop were visible visually. I did give the minor planets a look on your recommendation, but I'm not sure they are something I will continue to observe regularly. I would love your opinions on my short observing notes, though. It's, uh, you know, uh, he could make the mode uh, as slightly bigger uh, then the surrounding stars, although I thought this was not possible. Am I missing something? He said, uh, I'll put them down below at the end. I would love to hear more about extended objects. And this has further motivated me to go even wider. My setup, apart from my binos, is a ST80 plus a 35 millimeter pan optic, six degree field. I mean, I think that's a pretty good wide field setup. If I mean, maybe he's just recently upgraded that, but he goes on to say, but I think uh, I would like to go wider still and use more aggressive filters. He's considering a Red Cat 51, which is a four element Petzl Apo F5. And I'm familiar with that scope. I've never looked through it, but I'm familiar with it. Uh, but I'm not sure you can convert them to two inch um, mode. He says, um, what he means by that is the ability to put a two inch focus around it. You, and I don't think you can. I looked at those Red Cat 51s before Shane and I got into doing the. Uh, 
Borg 50 millimeters. And uh, he goes on to say, do your finder scope suffer much field curvature? How much does it hurt the view? I'm somewhat sensitive to aberrations. Uh, yes, these uh, finder scopes do have uh, significant field curvature. And I'm using uh, just like the Massiam, a 32 millimeter, and I'm sort of moderately sensitive to aberrations. So uh, kind of right in the middle, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, you get a pretty sharp view over much of the field. I think uh, a really there, there are some really good options out there. And I think if you're looking for um, something in this range, I really feel like something like one of the Borg um, mini scopes could work well. So if you look for one used uh, either on uh, Astrobicell by E or probably one of the best places is the Cloudy, um, what's it called? Cloudy Nights uh, Classifieds. Maybe you can find like a used 71 millimeter or something like that. Um, the other thing you could do, Wade, this might be a, a, a good path to go down is uh, Borg also made a 45 millimeter ED. And since you're really not on a path for aperture, but for wide field here, the 45 ED has a 325 millimeter focal length. And uh, I think there's some flatteners in that available. But anyway, that would probably um, help to reduce that. Like I think probably going to, um, you know, that that level of focal length would uh, would help reduce the, the field curvature. If not, uh, there's a, a 60 millimeter, which is 350 millimeters focal length. And then the 71 is at 5.6 or so that's 400. So if you went with the 71, I mean, you're right back up to where you are with your 80 millimeter. So if you're looking for wider than that, I mean, you are going to be battling the field curvature, but if you look on cloudy nights about, a, I don't even know how it might've been six months ago, could have been a year and six months ago, there was an exchange um, that I had with somebody and they had figured out that there is a, a field flattener that will work visually with the 90, 70, 71, 72, that is. Um, and the, uh, I think there's something else it works with. Uh, the 50, like Shane has the 50 FL. Like you could go in that route and basically kind of roll your own Petzl. And then it's also a focal reducer. So it gives you a really, really wide field of view and it's going to be super flat. So that's one thing I've kind of considered, although I, I really do like the 50 millimeter and I'm, I'm fine with some field curvature and some edge softness. Uh, it, it, I'm okay with it. Um, but eventually I kind of would like to get the 50 FL used and, uh, and get that, that focal reducer. So anyway, um, let's see. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the end of his email says PS, uh, observing notes below and goes on to say, uh, his observation of series from the 2nd of January was uh, very stellar in appearance though. I could possibly make it out, uh, make it a star sized disc instead of a pinpoint, another great star hopping target proving you need to know, uh, even with go to. So I guess you must be using go to, uh, the scope is a setup, uh, perfectly capable of this, uh, using a red dot and 50 millimeter, uh, right in correct image. He says Iris, which is another uh, minor planet we talked about. He observed that the same night, January 2nd. Uh, and he was hop, hop, hopping away. He said very challenging star hop appears even more stellar than Cirrus, but still somehow looks different to the stars around it, possibly the color, possibly a small disc, not a pinpoint, not sure. And then following um, your email to him, Shane, 
I think you replied and he wrote back to say, thanks for the reply, Shane. I know I need to record more info, but I guess I'm a bit lazy and too excited about uh, doing some actual observing. Uh, these observations were made with the eight inch uh, daub and a beta zoom eight millimeter. Would be great to hear if others saw something similar. Uh, that's my understanding of short focal length refractors as well. Newtonians have much flatter fields uh, compared to refractors and compound telescopes, even at the same focal length. So I'm pretty used to sharp field all the way to the edge. Apparently field flatteners are hard to make work right visually. Yeah, that's true. That's why I was thinking of a flat pencil refractor, quite pricey though, and in 1.25 mode. Yeah, it's a lot. He doesn't get as wide a field as the ST80 with 35 pan. And uh, even the ST80 is hard to balance with two inch. Can't imagine a 50. So yeah, the 50 isn't actually as hard to balance as the 80. Um, oddly enough, just the way that we have these ones set up. Um, let's see, did you have anything to add to that chain? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I would say too, like if you're looking for a wide field uh, refractor that has good edge performance, uh, first off, I think the expectation to set is you're probably not going to find anything greater than six to maybe seven degrees field of view that provides that real sharp field um, right to the edge. Uh, so another yeah. option out there um, is the the William Optic Xenostar 61 millimeter. Um, it's an F6 or F5.9 or something like that. It's focal length is yeah. 360. I have that. Um, it has a two inch focuser. Uh, it is sharp to the edge. Like it's a phenomenal telescope. Um, it's price is not too, too bad. And if you put like the, what is it? I think a seven inch dovetail on it, it helps balancing when you put the big, heavy two inch eyepieces, uh, on it. So, yeah. um, that's what I'll add there. Then, uh, maybe the only thing I'll, uh, the only other thing I'll add is just what I shared in regards to feedback for his observing logs. Um, you know, his logs were really good in terms of what he observed. And I basically just suggested to add a little bit more information regarding stuff around the observation. So like what telescope did you use? What eyepiece filter Barlow, um, sky conditions, you know, in terms of seeing and transparency, uh, and then temperature and humidity are sometimes uh, interesting too. And the only reason I suggest that is, you know, the human memory is terrible. Uh, you know, none of us really have good memories. Some are slightly better than others, but in general, it's not a good place to store information. <laughs> so, you know, in, in a year or two, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you may forget some of those details about your observation. And sometimes that can be like, some of those details can be really helpful in the future. You know, if, if you're trying to see something in a different way or, you know, even replicate an observation, um, having all that data there, um, can, can just help you, um, with your evolution and your observing. what do you think about his observation of more like stellar or tonal appearances of the minor planets that he was observing like Sirius and Iris? Yeah. Really interesting. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by that and yeah. I'm very curious about other folks' observations of the minor planets. If they've noticed that too, you know, instead of, instead of the minor planets, cause you and I have basically, I think, you know, if I go back to the podcast where we talk about the minor planets, I think we've often said they will look stellar. Um, so yeah. I, you know, I'm fascinated that with his eight inch, he was saying, you know, that series or a series you know, kind of looked a little different. It wasn't like all of the other stars and possibly a small disc, not a pinpoint. So um, yeah, if anybody has noticed that, please write us and, and let us know. I, I'm very curious. 
Yeah, it's quite fascinated by his his observations there. And I spent spending like like just thinking about it. I don't think I replied about it, but because you you replied and I thought you you sent out a nice reply. And I was, but I was thinking about it, and I mean there there's an element that makes a lot of sense to that. Um, so the one thing I thought of right off the hop is that um when you're looking at the minor planets, of course, they are closer. And, you know, although they, they may more or less appear like a star, like, a, like, and for me, I've only ever really done like quick looks at them or just hunted them down in binoculars. Um, but now it really makes me want to go and take a closer look. But I could imagine because if you think about like the, um, the light coming off it, so the minor planets are reflecting light from the sun. And the stars out in space that, that these minor planets are around are going to have their own you know, spectrum, right? So the spectrum itself is definitely going to be different. Like for sure, like if you had a spectroscope and you pointed it at stars, you point it at a minor planet, it's going to look, it's going to look fairly different. Right. And then, then the other thing I thought of is that you're going to have still like, like with um, all planets, you're going to have, you know, more like sort of beams of light coming at you. Right. Even though it's a small, relatively pinpoint of light, it's still going to have, um, like a broader array of sort of photons getting shot at you. Um, is that visually detectable? I hadn't really thought of that before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I mean, I, I kind of feel like that at the very least, he's made a tremendous observation here. I think, I think Wade you know, has, has pretty darn good vision and is a very attentive observer just in kind of how he, how he's sort of approaching things and what he's talking about. I think, I think he's really got the, uh, I think he's rather got the observing bug. And I think that he's also really um, thinking about his observations and really, you know, kind of working through them and not just going and looking at something and moving on, which is basically all I've done when I've looked at minor planets before. It's just not something I've done. Now I really want to go take a look. So I think that is a very interesting observation. I'd be really curious to hear if other people, and, and he was too, like he was kind of, as you know, you can go back and listen to it. He was kind of like questioning it. Right. Which is, mm-hmm. which is super cool. I mean, that's, you know, um, sort of the building block of, of good ob- observing is to go and say, I noticed this, is this like, is this right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I really can't, I can't tell them because I've, I think it's a really interesting observation and it would be cool if other people wrote back with observations using various size instruments. They, and these objects are still reasonably well-placed Iris and Cirrus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be really interesting to hear somebody maybe with like a, uh, like a 15, I know there's a couple of people that have 18 and 20 inch telescopes out there listening to the show. That would be uh, cool to hear if, you know, if they could make similar observations. The other thing I thought is like, you know, because they're a little bit extended, even if you were still only seeing it as a pinpoint of light, the, the blurring of that light might be a little different. You know, I was thinking about our bad um, conditions. I can't remember where Wade is or if he's told us where he isn't. Maybe it's inconsequential. But let's just say that he you're observing an object that is extended, but it's not that extended. So you're not really seeing it as much more or not even more than a, than a pinpoint of light. But um, let's say that the scene conditions aren't amazing. And it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of blurring a bit um then maybe maybe it's going to look different from the stars so mm-hmm. anyway we do have a, an email from jim but uh, i'm getting a note from shane that maybe some of the audio is breaking up a bit so um shane do you have anything uh, left to add maybe we should end it there and we can reconvene yeah no i have nothing else to add chris thanks all right well thank you so much 
Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>